everything that you had planned for the next decade, it all collapses. Your dreams, hopes, everything is crushed. Everything you worked for for three years, all gone. There's nothing left. This is where we find those who follow Jesus. But it's here in this moment of absolute despair, they find hope. So think about that as we read this passage. Luke 24, you can follow with me or follow on the screen the first 12 verses. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. Taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered to the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna the, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen closed by, him, by themselves, and he went home marveling at what it had happened. This is God's word. I want to talk about two things this morning. The first is the reality of the resurrection, and the second is the challenge of the resurrection. And this is really going to be kind of a, a three-week series about the hope of the resurrection. But when you consider those two thoughts, we are in a crisis of hope today. Talk about COVID-19. I listened to a 29-year-old woman this past week in frantic tears saying, that she just filled out her last will and testament and that she was going to die because of COVID-19. I mean, that's part of the crisis. People are scared they're going to die. But it's just more than COVID-19, isn't it? There's a loss of jobs. People are uncertain about unemployment and will the funds be enough? There's a crisis of those who have jobs, especially in the health care. They have to deal with those who have the virus. There's a strain in our schools in our marriages, in our families. There's a crisis in the addiction world. But this crisis is not something that just showed up in 2020. There's been incredible fear and anxiety growing as part of our culture. Let me give you three examples. A few years back, the New York Times put this headline on the front page. U.S. suicide rate surges to a 30-year high. And they traced the rates and discovered that in the last eight years, they doubled. The fastest group where suicide was rising were in kids and teens. It tripled for girls the age 10 through 14. One of the experts, Robert Putnam, a social scientist, stated this. It proves the suicide shift that society's got a crisis of hopelessness. 
A second example would be the dominant narratives in our TV and movies. I mean, think about what's been coming out in the last five years. There's apocalypses. There's nuclear disasters. There are environmental disasters. There's zombie tsunamis. There's sharknadoes. Everything is going wrong all the time. But Hollywood is portraying that. Disaster after disaster after disaster. The third example, they say, is the birth rate. People in general having fewer children. They're opting out of having children. In fact, people are moving in together instead of getting married. And social scientists say it's all because of lack of hope. They view nothing as permanent. Everything is temporary. So live for the moment, live for the now, and don't think about the future. Now, we can give other examples, but we have to ask this question. Why are we having this crisis of hope? Now, we could talk all morning about that, but I want you to just briefly look at a, a large picture about our culture, both social and personal. Social, Western society, we were raised with the belief that human ingenuity was going to bring about peace and prosperity, and that is what we were sold. We were sold that science will do that, that our technology will do that, our politics will do that. Our education will do that. Our economics will do that. That if we just make the right choices, then everything will be fine. And what we discovered is that human ingenuity has not brought us peace and prosperity. In fact, we're not finding the satisfaction we expected. You hear all the time, there's still too much injustice. There's still too much poverty. There's still too much division. There's still too much violence. I mean, think about COVID-19. It has brought an entire world to a halt, to its knees. But this social crisis had led to a personal crisis. Cynthia Hemmel wrote a column in the, the Village Voice New York. Now, she was someone who would rub soldiers with people who later would become famous. People like Sylvester Stallone, Julia Roberts, and others. They were past now and present. But here's what she wrote says, one of the funny things was that after they got famous, if anything, they were more unhappy, more angry, and more mean than they had been before. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened, and nothing changed. They were still them. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and they want acutely, something that cannot be had in their world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. And so in our culture, we say things like this. I just want more of the piece of pie, and then I would be happy. And I need, I need a better spouse. I need a better job. I need a larger degree. I need a bigger house. I need more trips. And if I would get all these things, then it would happen. But they don't realize that the hole in our hearts are too big for any of these things to fill. So this is the hope I want to talk about this morning. The hope that Jesus Christ brings. And the hope, we're going to talk about this for the next two weeks. So let's look at the reality of the resurrection. 
This is what the Christian hope is. Jesus Christ, a human being, lived and died in history. And then he was raised from the dead in history. And he was seen by just not a dozen, but by hundreds of people. And this proves there's something beyond death. It proves there's a transcendent, that just means an other world reality, beyond this present reality. And what it tells us is that we have hope, just not today, but off in the future. And this image of God's stuff we're created with, it all points to the reality that there's something beyond what we call this human life. Now, you might say, well, I, I don't believe that. I mean, I can believe that Jesus was a real person. He did some good things. But this whole coming back from the dead thing, I just can't get my head around that. Let's talk a moment about the evidence for the resurrection. Now, I don't have time to go into everything, but I'm going to explore a couple ideas and then give you some resources if you want to explore this later. The first is Paul. He wrote a letter, a very public letter. It was called 1 Corinthians. And this has been proven, just not by biblical scholars, but by scholars around the world, that this is an ancient document that was written by Paul around 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that, in the, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, Kind of saying, listen, if you want to verify what I'm saying, go talk to these people. Though some have fallen asleep, some have died. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So here's what Paul says in this letter. Hundreds of people saw him. Go talk to them. Many are still alive. You may not believe me or them, but they were there. And, and what we see then is a massive shift. Paul's worldview shifted 180 degrees. He was going in this direction of persecuting those who believed in the resurrection to believing that Christ arose from the dead. So we have to ask ourselves, how could this letter stand the test of something so false? If this was a ridiculous, false, mythological narrative, how could it stand the test? Now, here's another proof. This one's kind of crazy, but you have the logic of creating a false narrative, okay? If you're going to create a false story, here's how you would do it. Here's how you would not do it. When you read the Gospels, who were the first people to witness Christ in his resurrection form? The answer is women. Roman law and Jewish law stated women could not give evidence in court 
Here's why. And I'm just reading Roman law, okay? So ladies, don't get upset at me. It says that women were not considered reliable witnesses. So think about this for a moment. If you are going to make up a story to promote your religion, you would never, 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 never use a woman as an eyewitness. So the only possible reason to put women into the account as first eyewitnesses is because they were there. Okay, you say. So hundreds of people saw him. And you might say, you know, people back then, they were superstitious, gullible. They were part of an elaborate hoax. They're less advanced than us. That's the mythology we believe about that we are a superior society. But here's another observation you have to come up with an answer. People died for this hoax, if you think it's a hoax. Decade after decade, they were persecuted, killed. The first Christians did not fare too well. And think of it this way. We know that according to the historical count in Scripture, hundreds of people saw something, Christ the resurrected. And we know that thousands died for this hope. Therefore, the evidence must have been pretty strong to make such a massive worldview shift in such a short period of time. When you study worldview studies, it takes decades and even centuries to shift worldviews. Not a single event, not a single week and year. But here's my last observation, then I'll move on. So if you do not believe in the historical resurrection of Christ, what's your possible alternative historical explanation for the birth of the church? I mean, how's the church survived all these centuries? People today are still dying for this resurrected Christ. How do you explain Easter? I mean, this is their hope. Now, if you want to explore this topic more, let me give you three resources. One is called A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He was an atheist journalist for the Chicago Tribune that went to investigate this to denounce it and ended up being converted because of the evidence that he found. If you don't like to read, I know you can get the movie, The Case for Christ, and watch that. Rabbi Zacharias has too many books to really put out this morning. Anything he writes talks about the reality of who Jesus Christ is and the evidence that demands. He is quite the intellectual. Then there's an old book written way back when I was in high school. I know, that's really old. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And it really talks about all the prophecies that Christ had to fulfill and just the possibility of one person fulfilling all those prophecies is really impossible. So those three sources, you can look if you want to explore this further. Or if you'd like to call me and talk to me, I'd be more than glad to do that. But let's move on to the challenge of the resurrection. The challenge is, if this is true, what are you going to do with it? To use Francis Schaeffer's term, how then shall we live? Now, if you listen to Hollywood in terms of what's going to happen after this life, you got to turn to the Lion King. You know, they all sing this song and, and we all applaud about the circle of life. But the story about a little lion talking to a big lion and the little lions asking about death. And so here's what the big lion says. We die. Then we become fertilizer. We fertilize the ground and things grow. And the things growing in the ground are eaten by this group. Then the antelopes eat that group. Then we eat the antelopes. 
So when you die, don't worry, you become part of the circle of life. We're all part of the circle of life. Isn't that wonderful? And they have a really nice drums going and music sing, and we just feel so good about this. I read a story this past week about a woman who was trying to talk to a group of children who were asking about death, and she didn't believe in the afterlife, so she defaulted to the philosophy of the Lion King. You know, when you die, you become part of the circle of life. To that, one of the eight-year-old boys responded. He got up, he started screaming, running away, saying, I don't want to become fertilizer. (laughs) But the truth of the resurrection, what do we do with that? When you realize that Christ arose, that he had a body after his death, if you believe in him, that there's an eternal life thing going on, and life as it was meant to be is just not here but there, what do you do with that? Dwight Moody, when he was getting sick, he's a prominent evangelist some years ago, wrote this, someday you'll read in the papers that Dwight Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I'll be more alive than I am now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, just before he's executed for plotting against Hitler, wrote his parents from a cell, and here's what he said. I'm about to experience the supreme festival on the road to freedom. Now that's hope. And this hope is available. But the problem is we become blinded by our own agendas and get distracted by our circumstances. I call it life interrupted. We see this in the disciples. I mean, they hung all their hopes on Jesus. Now that's a good thing. But it was their version of Jesus. And their lives were devastated by the real plans of Jesus. And those plans were far greater plans than theirs. And what we often realize, and I think we know this, but we have to repeat it to ourselves, that we have to unlearn certain things we already think we know, and we're so convinced that this is the way it has to be so that we can enter into those plans that Christ has for us. N.T. Wright wrote a book called For All God's Worth, True Worship and the Calling of the Church. Here's what he says about the resurrection. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the injustices and the pains of this present world must be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ has truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are epidemic, endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things, and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement victory of Jesus over them all. That's the challenge of the resurrection. That we learn to live in the present, just not the future. We know there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. We know that all the injustice will be settled, but we work towards that in this world. We keep the future in our vision, but we must deal with what are we going to do about it now in this present world. And what that means is we get beyond nice church, where everything's about my wants and desires, preferences and comforts, where everything is about celebrity showmanship, 
And we moved to a powerful church. One that Jesus told Peter that not even the gates of hell will stop it. One that when Jesus said, I am in the garden, an entire cohort of soldiers fall to the ground. One where Paul says, we are more than conquerors. I like what Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. He says, but whatever I had to gain, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You understand there can be no resurrection without the crucifixion. So the next two weeks, I want to talk about this resurrection, this hope, and, and kind of continue this dialogue in the midst of our day. But let, let me remind you this morning that anyone who can predict their death and resurrection and pull it off, I don't know about you, but they have my attention and they have my life. I want to close by giving you four questions I found on a, a break point journal this past week. They're starting points for our responses in this present world. And they're starting points I want you to think about coming the next weeks about how we respond in the midst of our hopeless culture. Here's the first. What is good that we can celebrate? You know, thanksgiving and gratitude is all over Scripture. So why not start with our blessings? See the beauty, just not the evil. We have so much... We need to be a people of generosity. So begin with the good. Second question, what is missing that we can contribute? You know, that keeps us from the critical complaining blame game. Where can I fill in the gaps? Who or what is falling between the craps? Keep us from closing in on ourselves, becoming selfish and thinking we got to protect ourselves to moving out into a world that needs Jesus. Third question, what evil can we confront? I mean, we've seen the evil through this COVID-19 of hoarding and, and selfishness and pride and addictions, blindness and deafness. Evil's alive and well, and we're called to bring light into that darkness. And the fourth question, what is broken that we can restore? Of course, here we're talking about people, not fixing them, but walking with them. But allowing Christ to give them this hope. So I ask you, where's your hope this morning? Are you chasing the hope that sends you down a dead-end street that goes nowhere? Or is your hope alive and well in the person of a resurrected individual named Jesus? For some, that means you need to begin that journey this morning. You need to accept him as Savior and Lord. For others, it's a restart. You've been living very selfishly. You begin you've been living according to Jesus of your own interpretation. And you need to get back to who he is. And for others, it simply means you keep growing until we see him face to face. Now, for those that need to begin that journey, I want you to get in touch with us. We'd love to talk to you. Contact information is on our website, on our Facebook. There's phone numbers. 
But please, if you want to begin that journey, let us know that you have and let us know that you desire that. Let me pray. Father God, it's hard to us imagine. We've, we've seen a lot of stories this week. It's hard for us to imagine all this being so true. And yet the evidence is there. And that evidence demands that we respond. So I pray for all of us, Lord, in the midst of our world that literally is shrunken by technology, that we reach out and we allow you to use us to make a difference. May we not hide and cower in fear, but may we look to you in hope and may we respond in ways that honor you. May we understand about the power of the resurrection, but also what it means to fellowship in your sufferings. May we be the people of hope, Lord, that you've called us to be. In your name we pray. Amen.